The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome back to This is Working. On every episode of This is Working, we talk to leaders who have had a significant impact on business and society, and in today's case, on the way that we eat. My guest today is Chef David Chang, founder of the restaurant company Momofugu Group. Dave started working in the restaurant world by answering phones in New York's famous craft restaurant. From there, he ventured into the kitchen, and he hasn't left since. Uh, actually, that's not quite right. He's a master of doing stuff outside the kitchen. Dave's authored books, he stars in his own Netflix show, and he's launched a podcast. Momofuku started as a tiny noodle bar. Now its name is on flavors being sold direct to consumer. In our interview, we cover a lot of ground, from why consumers need to come to grips with paying more for their food, to the importance of tackling mental health issues. 2020 has been a particularly trying year for the whole hospitality industry. And to kick things off, Dave gave us a snapshot of the restaurant world today. Here's our conversation. The restaurant industry at large is uh, sort of bifurcated. I think if you are uh, have access to public markets and you have sort of franchise capacities or uh, certain restaurants are doing really well, um, but most independent restaurants are struggling to keep their head above water. But the reality was, or is, I should say, Restaurants weren't doing that well before the pandemic hit. So we've we've all had to figure out how to uh, create new uh, revenue streams. And I think we've pivoted like everyone else to doing delivery, to doing dining outside. You know, restaurants are incredibly scrappy. And everyone, as you've seen, is figuring out how to, how to stay in business if they're able to do so in a healthy, uh, safe way, first and foremost. But I think... The big struggle really is what do we what do we do because revenue may not be coming back in the same way even after a therapeutic or vaccine. So about I don't know two three years ago we had a a big board meeting and we wanted to put a goal of doing fifty percent of our revenue in five years was going to be generated outside the four walls of a restaurant and we have a lot of uh, resources and we had a a plan in place and it was a a a release of a lot of the products that we've had in uh, our lab. Um, and we've released some in savory salts, uh, the chili crunch, and soon to be some vinegars and soy sauce and tamales. And uh, we're, we're, we've really been ramping that up, but we didn't plan on doing that so quickly. It was going to be done over a five-year period. We've now put five years into eight months, and I'm really proud of our team, uh, more specifically Marguerite Mariscal and the entire Momofuku leadership have done a remarkable job of sort of navigating these crazy, crazy times. So, um, you know, long story cut short, we're doing anything and everything to fight another day. But uh, I see light at the end of the tunnel in terms of where Momofuku could be, uh, and it's not necessarily just doing restaurants. You don't think that restaurants will come back when a vaccine or therapeutics are in place? Why, why is that? Without legislation and you know the, this metaphorical restaurant car of an industry has been broken a long time. So uh, it would be incredibly terrible if we went back to March of 2020. We have an opportunity to fix this for the workers that populate the industry to how we pay for the food to all the benefits and so on and so forth. We, we need to fix things. And that has to be through legislation. 
And we also need legislation for another round of stimulus because, you know, I've been saying that restaurants collectively, independently are sort of like too small to fail. The, the, the diametric opposite spectrum of too big to fail in the 20, 2008 financial crisis because restaurants are banks. We are not just banks financially, but we're cultural banks. But from a financial way, 90% of the revenue generated by restaurants go out the door immediately to, to other vendors, to butchers, to accountants, to florists, you name it. And that all trickles up back to investment banks, right? It goes to real estate. I think the real estate needs to change. We need sort of percentage rents. The whole thing needs to be addressed. It hasn't been addressed. And I hope the new administration, uh, I'm hopeful that they will address it. But that being aside, let's just assume all of that gets taken care of in the interim, in the hypothetical world. The, the thing that we need to tackle right now, and we have the, the time, and we've had the time, and we haven't addressed it, is what happens when corporate expenditures don't come back for a while? I lived through September 11th in New York. I lived through the financial crisis. And each of those took about three to five years, I think, for things to come back to normal, uh, especially September 11th, uh, for for travel to come back. And when I say corporate expenditures, it shouldn't put people off being like, oh, that's just uh, the super high-end fancy restaurants. Without corporate offices, without people populating them, you don't have a lunch business. You don't have breakfast business. It's hard for independent coffee operators to be in business. There's only so much you can do with delivery and the logistics involved with that. Happy hour was more prominent on the East Coast than it is on the West Coast, but a lot of bars are dependent on that happy hour rush. And you don't have corporate dining expenses, so a lot of beverage sales will go down. You don't have private dining room in, in, in restaurants. And collectively speaking, corporate business is very similar to, I think, what first class and business class is in, in the airline business. It takes 10% around uh, of the actual real estate on a plane, but 20 to 30% of revenue. And that's very similar to the revenue model in restaurants, whether you're a fancy restaurant or you know just making bacon, egg, and cheese in the morning. And if we don't have something to get us to that next level where if all these restaurants are pivoting to keep their head above water right now, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to keep afloat for another year plus. And we know this is going to happen, yet we don't have anything right now to address this problem. And it's not just about the restaurant business. It's about the people that work in the restaurants. And I don't know if we're doing enough. I'm not, I know we're not doing enough to, to take care of them. So I don't know any other way to, to fix this other than legislation. Do you have any sense that legislation is coming? Have, have you talked to lawmakers? Is this more of a hope than a belief? Everyone knows it needs to be addressed. I just don't know if people know how to do it. And this isn't about political ideology, which it should be, right? Put political ideology aside, it's small business isn't Republican or Democrat. It is immigrants, it's legacies, it's everyone trying to just do their jobs. And the coronavirus doesn't care about the ideology either. We all need help, whether you're a small business or a large business. And right now, I'm not an economist. Just ask my professors in college. I'm probably the last person in the world anyone should be talking about this, but we need help. And I have to remain hopeful that it will happen because if it doesn't happen, you are, without trying to be hyperbolic here, looking at uh, a mass extinction event for, for small independent restaurants, even with the therapeutic, because there's going to be a lag time uh, for, this business, for other businesses to come back online. Right. The, the restaurant business can't come back on its own. It depends on the rest of the economy functioning 
to be able to put that money into businesses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think to, to remember too, many restaurants are battling restaurant groups that have access to public markets that are publicly traded. And, and not a surprise that they've been able to really prosper and thrive. Just look at their market caps increased over the past eight months. It is the have and have nots. And, and, and I don't know if that's necessarily fair. One of the things that you mentioned is to try to diversify the business. There's the consumer packaged goods. Is this something that all businesses can do? When you think about moving into other businesses, I would assume if you're a small business and you're just trying to keep afloat, this idea of also spinning off other revenue streams is probably a pretty impossible thing to consider. What do you say to people who are watching this and saying like, you know, Dave, I'm trying to, I've got like a one, I've got one storefront that I'm trying to keep alive. Should I be thinking about CPG or moving into, you know, branded items? What do you say to them? This is not going to be a popular answer because there's no magic bullet. I, I wish I had the perfect answer myself. The only thing I do know is everything and anything need to be, needs to be on the table. And uh, we're not in a position to eliminate any possibilities. So it might be CPG for us. It may be something different for you. Um, and there, there's, there's so many different kinds of restaurants, uh, so many different kinds of small businesses that I would be reluctant to say that this is a magic cure for everybody. I think the only thing you can do is look at what you may think are really bad ideas. And, and and really analyze, is it really that bad? Because if anything, you know, with the prospect of failure, you know, very grim for so many businesses, this is a great opportunity to try the craziest things. That's a hard thing to sort of wrap your head around. But this is the time to to, to go for broke, literally, and to try anything and everything to make something work and to iterate and to constantly evolve. And, and that is not uh, comforting at all to hear, but it's what I'm telling myself and my company as well, that we can't eliminate any option. If one of our restaurants just winds up selling sloppy Joe's, fine. That's what we got to do. Uh, you know, ego is not part of the equation anymore. This is very similar to what we've heard in the past. Mark Cuban, Sarah Blakely from Spanx, Rose Mercario from Patagonia, all said very similar things. And they talked about leaning into their employee base and for asking for ideas from their employees and saying like, yeah, you are a server in the restaurant, but now we need ideas from you on where we should go next and being open to hearing ideas from everyone. I assume that you are, are leaning in the same way. Absolutely. In fact, like I was reluctant to do a lot of frozen pork buns and stuff like that. I was editing in my own head, but we have team that put the work in and, and now we're selling stuff on Goldbelly and we have a director consumer site uh, on Momofuku to sell all these things. So uh, I'm proud of my team because they're the catalyst for all this change. It's not coming from me. And I couldn't be prouder of the team. Whatever happens, I'm so thankful for the amazing people that that make up Momofuku because um, uh, I feel this is some of the best work we've ever done because all options are on the table and we're trying literally everything. Let's talk about mental health for a second. You've been more outspoken than I think than I've seen any business leader about topics on mental health and how mental health has both helped and sabotaged your career. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think your book, which was an incredible read, I recommend it to everyone, uh, really goes deeply into your own struggles. How did you decide this was something you were going to talk about publicly? Well, Daniel, I never thought I'd talk about this. And, and when I started to see help from my psychiatrist, I mean, 16 years ago, 
Um, I never even want to talk to him about it. So it's quite the surprise that I'm, you know, telling so many people, uh, the whole world really, whoever wants to know about my mental illness. And I think the reason why I'm willing to talk about it is because I put in the work. I, I've tried to get better, both as a person and also someone that's trying to address my my sort of mental illness. And uh, over the years, um, I, I feel a lot of people have come to me being like, hey, Dave seems pretty crazy. I'm going through something. Maybe he can direct me in some way for, for assistance. And over the years, that's actually, you know, added up. It's quite a lot of people. And I found that the one commonality in all of it is people just are afraid to ask for help. And I've come to the conclusion that, you know, this mental, this taboo about mental illness is completely ridiculous. And we've, if you look at culture, how we've changed our perception of so many things, right? Even addiction, right? Nobody looks down upon, I, I mean, maybe there still is, but we have a lot more sympathy for someone that is going through any kind of addiction. That wasn't the case 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, I've had a lot of cancer in my family and no, nobody wants cancer, but no one's really truly afraid to say, hey, I, I have liver cancer or I have, uh, you know, breast cancer. It's something that you tell people because you're going through something and it's not your fault. And I, I liken a lot of the idea of mental illness to this ridiculous taboo notion that we have in culture and the world at large that it can change. And I believe very strongly that it's just a matter of perception and, and we can, uh, through talking about it, simply just talking about it and letting people know that asking for help and holding out hope is, is, is actually strength. Asking for help is a lot stronger than sucking it up. And Anyone that has mental illness should realize, and I hope the world at large will realize too, that if you have, you know, I, I just use asthma as an example. Nobody feels bad or looks down upon someone that uses an inhaler because they have asthma. We just accept that. And, and I think that we should feel the same way for those that are struggling through any kind of mental illness that they shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. They don't necessarily have to be open about it either, but they have the choice and they shouldn't feel bad. It should be as commonplace as talking about any other ailment. So it is a very tough topic to talk about and to unpack. But, you know, if, if you are, and I always say, if, if you see a cardiologist for your heart, why wouldn't you want to see a psychiatrist for your brain? You don't just suffer from it. In reading your book, it's clear that you, you have, this is probably the wrong way to put it, but you almost have a love-hate relationship with your depression and being bipolar. You say, uh, nothing I've achieved would have been possible if I hadn't been ready to die from the outset. How my success is completely tied to my depression. Can you just talk about that balancing act of saying, I have this, this is actually helping me while at the same time it's hurting maybe me and my relationships? Momofuku and depression are sort of one and the same in some ways because it was, you know, I started it to, in some ways, fight depression. And gave me a purpose to do something outside of myself that I didn't think was possible. And, you know, the main reason I, I decided to start Momofuku or to, to, to open it up was, you know, you get to a place in your life where you're like, it's an either or proposition. And once you realize that the things that you cared about, right? Like, oh, if I fail at opening this restaurant, ultimately who cares? And it is a dangerous thing to be that reductive. But as long as I wasn't going to hurt anyone else, and if I only hurt myself, then 
everything else again was on the table and, and an option that I could explore. And I wanted to see how far I could go down these rabbit holes uh, without sort of thinking about them in an academic setting and actually physically doing it. So I've used depression as a way to sort of really weigh what's actually important. And, and the only important thing to me is, you know, um, just trying things out. And, and, and it's, if it's a life and death situation, that's about it. I try to define it as the best and worst case, almost in everything I do to define, you know, the, the spectrum. So I don't have to waste my time. Uh, thinking about all the infinite possibilities. I think, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? What's the best thing that can happen? And then starting with Momofuku, I was like, oh, if I have to declare bankruptcy or I have to, you know, become an embarrassment or a social pariah to my friends, then who cares, right? Who cares? And you don't, you don't die with any of this stuff either. And it's all ephemeral. It's all transient. So my depression forced me to look at the world in ways that are highly uncomfortable but also I was able to sort of maybe judo move it. And it, it was strangely a catalyst for me to, to do things that I would not normally do. I am weirdly a very quiet person. I won't say quiet, but I, I don't, I'm an introvert, right? I, I, I'm a wallflower. And I think depression has forced me outside of my, my comfort zones. And so many things have resulted in a positive way, but also negatively because that is not a, a healthy engine to constantly draw from. <laughs> Um, so I'm in that process of trying to figure that out constantly. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I do want to ask you this. How do you think about helping people out in your own industry who you might see suffering from it, if the kitchen workers are expected to put work before their own well-being, how do you suggest restaurant owners start putting their workers' health first instead of just profit? And tied to that, I would say, like, you know, you talk a lot about workaholism and how this is kind of tied to mental health issues. I would think as a manager, you kind of, you almost want to see people being willing to put, put to work 24-7, but it, it might be a symptom of something else they're struggling with. So would you just talk about how you give back in the kitchen to people who might also be struggling? what you expect to see from chefs? Well, that's, that's a very, you know, it's not difficult because it's, 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 it's not a hard question to answer. There's just many facets to that. And, 
you know, uh, one of the things about hopefully legislation that would get passed is to have uh, health insurance that would offer mental help. You know, we have restaurants in Canada, and I know that while it's not always an easy thing, that there are more resources to people that need mental help. And it's just very difficult to get that. And oftentimes, it's not covered by health insurance. So I think before you look at restaurants, we need to go to a more, you know, holistic approach. From the restaurant end, I can't speak on behalf of any owners or their altruistic nature, but really the biggest obstacle to providing better benefits to employees is profit and profit is intertwined. And, uh, you know, a lot of the fixed costs before the pandemic hit were getting higher. It was just more and more difficult to run a profitable business. And one of the things that needs to change is food needs to be more expensive. And there are dramatic consequences involved with doing something like that. But ultimately, if we can't get help uh, financially from the government, to provide these benefits than it is on the private sector to do so. And restaurants are on incredibly thin margins and people just don't want to pay more for their food. They just don't. Um, so that that's something that I think we need to have a larger conversation because we can offer better benefits if you're not staying in business. And most restaurants were having a hard time to do that to begin with. Um, and I think we got to start there first. And now we're going through a conversation about a better work-life balance without having a lot of the legacy issues that the restaurant industry has had, whether it's uh, it's just got a lot of problems. And this is an amazing opportunity that I hope we don't squander to start anew from a, from a cultural perspective and from how we operate as a business. But I think unequivocally, weirdly, and frustratingly, People expect food to be cheap, and it shouldn't be. So it sounds like you've got we've got government on one side that needs to be able to start providing answers. On the other, on, on the eater side, on the consumer side, you're telling people start being prepared to pay for more food. If you don't like what you're seeing in the industry, if you want this to survive, you've got to start being okay shelling out a little bit more, or maybe a lot more. A lot more because it is on the consumer's end. Even if it's not about that, from an environmental perspective, you know, if you buy a dollar hamburger, someone else is paying the price. So, you know, it's something we need to have a lot more awareness about. I want to talk to you about uh, career advice. One of the things I loved in your book was you, you talk about growing the company. You use the lobster as a metaphor for how you think about how each of your uh, restaurants needs to grow. So would you talk about why the lobster is this perfect spirit animal for, for growth? Yeah, it's funny, right? There's a great essay, nonfiction essay by David Foster Wallace called Consider the Lobster. That's probably one of the best works of food nonfiction ever. And um, I really meditated on the lobster, not just because I've cooked a lot of them, because uh, growing is hard. Getting out of your comfort zone is very difficult. As we've talked on this call so far, um, you know, part of the Momofuku process, at least for me, is making mistakes and, and moving from them. And analyzing. I'm constantly analyzing the mistakes that I've made because I am like pathologically wired to be better, to improve. It doesn't always happen at the pace that I'd like. Oftentimes I have to be reminded by other people that, hey, Dave, you are really bad at this. You suck at this. And uh, I need to be told so I can be better. And growing up is so painful. It's so hard. And a lobster molts. And when it molts, uh, to, to, to get bigger, it, it becomes vulnerable. And, and at some point, 
I, I can empathize with anybody that they just don't want to grow up anymore. And age has nothing to do with wisdom. Absolutely has nothing to do with it. Uh, it's a matter of how many hands of poker do you want to play and do you want to see? And, and you're going to lose a lot of these hands of poker. And the more you fail, the more you're going to grow, the more it's going to hurt. And at some point, a lobster, if it doesn't get eaten by a predator, it dies because it just doesn't want to molt anymore. And it literally just... It, it'll just that's how it will die unfortunately and and that is the the choice that is thrust upon myself and i feel so many people that i know that uh choosing to take the the road less travel choosing to make your heart your life more difficult so you can become a more wise more mature person a more well-adjusted human being is not an easy task and at some point it's natural for people just to want to give up and i have to remind myself as a lazy person, because I am naturally a lazy person to not do that, to constantly molt. Yeah. Well, so what we've learned on this uh, on this so far is that you're you're lazy. You don't take you don't like hear people pushing back on you. This is all great. You've been incredibly successful uh, because I think you are so um, willing to question yourself. Um, and I would love to know what you tell young people who come to you and you know, they see your success and they're like, I want to be you. I want to ha have something similar. I'm going to build my own Momofuku. What kind of advice do you give people who are just starting out? What do you say to them? As cliche as it sounds, do what you love. Do not worry about what your friends or your peer group or culture at large is telling you to do, because I think you only have one life and it's a shame to have the options that are available. Because if you have a choice, if you are one of the very few people to have a choice to decide what you want to do, you won the lotto. You may not think you did, but you won the genetic lotto. Don't squander that opportunity by doing something you hate because there are a lot of people that would love to be in your position and won't squander those opportunities. So in some ways, you need to do it for everyone else that doesn't have your opportunities and just do what you love, man. And I, 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 I cannot believe that I've had the opportunities I've had because at the time I decided to cook, people thought it was career suicide. It was not cool to, to want to cook. And now it is, but I wasn't doing it for what was cool. I was doing something that was going to give me meaning. I've now met a lot of successful people from all walks of life. And I think the common thing, common thread that I've seen is they do what they wanted to do and they weren't afraid of failure uh, or the prospect of it. It's something that they had to do. And, you know, I get a lot of people to ask, you know, ask me like, hey, I want to open my own restaurant. I, I try to dissuade them not to do it because the one thing, again, with the common thing that I see with a lot of successful people is an intense passion that they cannot imagine doing anything else. And they have to scratch that itch. And if you can't scratch that itch, then that's the profession that you have to do. You know, you don't have the hindsight to be like, I should have, could have, would have. Like, that is the worst thing that you can have is to have regret that you should have done something differently. And I think you should be present and, and just do that decision now. And, and, and other thing I tell younger people, and this sounds crazy, is in order to learn how to be selfless, you have to be incredibly selfish. What do you mean by that? I think if you're a well-adjusted human being and, and, and the people that I want to surround myself with, they're, they're, they're good to other people. They treat others like they would want to be treated themselves. And, you know, as a boss, you want to, as a leader, a manager, you know, people rally around the leaders that look out for other people's interests. I just think it's a very simple concept. But in order to do that, I think you have to 
like learn yourself first, right? In order to break the rules, you got to learn the rules. And, and sometimes learning the rules is learning about yourself and having enough life experiences where you can sort of have the perspective at an older age. And again, age has nothing to do with it. It's again, how many scenarios you've seen to sort of draw upon that. So I think for myself, now that I'm 43 years old and I have a child and I'm married, I don't know if I would have had the desire to be as reckless as I was starting a business when I was 26. There's no way I could have done it. I actually know I couldn't have done it because it just doesn't, it's not, it's so illogical. It's so nonsensical to do what I did. And ultimately it would be, uh, it would endanger my family and their life, their well-being. But when it was just me, let's go, you know, let's go for broke. And I'm, I'm happy that I lived that life because now I don't have to, because now I can spend that time on, on my family. And that's what I mean. I, I was very selfish when I was younger and I'm glad that I was because now I have the opportunity to not be. So what do you say to people then who work for you and say, I'm going to start my own. This is my passion. Dave, you said, do things I love. I love owning. I want to be the head chef. I want to run this restaurant. I know I've only been working for you for six months as a, you know, in, in the, the back of the kitchen, but I'm ready to do this. I'm going to go chase my passion. Do you say go for it? Is that your advice? Yeah, this is your passion. No, I'm, I mean, I, 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 I try to encourage them by trying to, again, dissuade them. And I'm, I'm not trying to ruin anyone's dreams here, but what I'm looking for is that, that, that passion, that itch that has to be scratched. And there's this apocryphal story that's in the book where I say, if you want to open up a restaurant and let's just say either you've been cooking professionally for some years or you're just a great home cook and you think you can open up a business, both of those scenarios have produced, you know, fantastic restaurants, but very, very few of them actually have ever been successful. You have the business plan, you've got the investors, and you're going to host a dinner party for your investors as like a completion of your fundraise for the restaurant that you've always wanted to open up. And you, you know, cook all the food that you wanted to cook. And at some point during the dinner, you take all the checks or metaphorically the actual cash, and you need to be willing to burn it in front of your investors. And... If you're not willing to do that, I know this sounds insane because that's the point. If you still have to do it, if that's what it takes to get to where you need to go in a very selfish, narcissistic way, that is the kind of illogical passion you're going to need to, to get through, the, the, through all the obstacles. And um, it's, it's borderline certifiably crazy to do something like that. So... It's dangerous advice. It's also very hard. So I, I, I do try to dissuade people from doing it, but there have been a handful of people that have said, fine, if that's what I need to do, then fuck it, let's go. And those are the people that I will bet on, the, the, the crazy, crazy people that have to do it. And it sort of warms the heart and also terrifies me simultaneously. And the other thing I would say to that, that I've learned and, and something we've talked about, I think I've talked about in the book and I'm learning now at my, 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 my relatively young age of 43 is you know, we, we put such a premium on getting to the mountaintop, all these books and all the talks about how to become successful is exactly that, that, uh, it's this almost solo endeavor and achievement. Once you get there, whatever the proverbial mountaintop is for you, whether it's a business or some kind of goal, I would tell younger people, make sure that you save something for the, for, for, for the swim back or the, the climb back down. 
because oftentimes when you get to the, the to wherever you wanted to go, you don't know how to get down. And sometimes it can be more dangerous. Everyone teaches you how to be successful. No one teaches you how to live with success. And that's something I feel as a culture, we need to address a lot more because it's a slippery slope to, to climb down that mountain. And sometimes it's, a, oftentimes it's a lot more dangerous. That was Momofuku Group chef and founder, David Chang. During our entire conversation, LinkedIn members were in the chat just sharing comments and thanks for Dave's willingness to speak so much on this particular topic, particularly on his own mental health journey. I saw terms like game changer being thrown around and they thanked him for helping them tackle the stigma against mental health issues within the restaurant industry. And I gotta say, even after reading his book, I was impressed with how candidly Dave was willing to address his own mental health struggles. Taking care of our mental health is something that the entire team at LinkedIn News and everyone working on This Is Working takes really seriously. We would love to hear from you about how you're looking after yourself during this ongoing pandemic and beyond. Let us know how you fortify yourself during difficult times in general. You can join the conversation over on LinkedIn by posting and using the hashtag, this is working. As always, to get more news and insights, please follow our main LinkedIn page, which you can find by searching for LinkedIn News. And take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps listeners find the show. This is Working as a production of LinkedIn. The podcast was produced by Sarah Storm with help from Dave Pond and Michaela Greer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original video and audio. Dave Pond is our technical director. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you next week.